G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced down here in Geelong and acknowledge the Wathaurung people as the traditional custodians on the lands that we made. I'd also like to extend those respects wherever you listen to the podcast and acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands where our podcast guests are joining us from. We know that First Nations Australians have told stories and used stories to pass on wisdom, create connection and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations and would like to pay homage to it as part of this podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. So, thank you for joining us as part of the GRDC In Conversation podcast and let's jump into it. If Paul McIntosh was stepping into his career today, we may well have missed having him in Aussie Ag. Well, at least for a period of time anyway. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately for him, sorry Paul, he needed full-time work to support his love and passion for cricket. He stepped out of high school and into a stock and station agency group throughout Queensland and northern New South Wales. The role meant that he could still play representative cricket on weekends and work towards his dream of being a gun auctioneer. Now, for the cricket fans out there, I did happen to get a little bit of an education, so you can poke a bit of fun at me. Paul was bragging about how in one year he bowled 246 eight ball overs before Christmas. And I was kind of sitting there scratching my head going, okay, Paul, but um, an over's six, does that mean you're bowling two no balls every over? So I'm not actually too sure what you're bragging about. Anyway, corrected I was. Turns out they used to be eight ball overs. I'm showing my age here, aren't I? He hit a crossroad in 1979. He had the option to either pursue cricket for a season over in England or take up an emerging opportunity with Australian estates in their agronomy practice. Well, as they say, he decided the latter and the rest, it's history. So I guess in a nutshell, you're someone who has grown up in Goomerai in Queensland. I'm fascinated to understand a little bit more about the town, but really interested to chat about your role today as an industry development agronomist with Pulse Australia for the Northern Region. But keen to, yeah, flesh out how, how the grains industry in Australia through your eyes has changed and evolved, but also to find out a little bit more about this person who I'm sure many people have come across in their careers and lives. And there might be parts of your story which they don't know a whole lot about. So I'd just love to know at this stage, Paul, how are you feeling? You know that we're, it's nearly like an episode of This Is Your Life. <laughs> You've had a, had a bit of chance over the last few days to think about and reflect on things. How are you feeling at this stage? Oh, very comfortable. I, I sent you a couple of pages of notes to get some brush up. But yeah, it, of course, it's Gumeri, G-O-O-M-E-R-I, not Gumeri, but you're going pretty well saying that. Yeah, it's Gumeri. And it has been a long time, Ollie. You're, you're very right there. And it has changed, like the days when there was cultivation, cultivation and more hurrying in our paddocks, which did nothing for our soil structure, did nothing for our moisture accumulation, and eventually did nothing for our yield. And that, that zero till that started to be used when the, the glyphosate or the Roundup it was when Monsanto came out in the late 70s and we used it on our home farm to kill Johnson grass before Dad planted loose and it did a brilliant job. So that really stuck in my mind, that one incidence of Dad using five litres of this terrible, terrible expensive poison called Roundup to kill his Johnson grass before we planted one of our loosened paddocks. 
that paddock was black for weeks. It was such a good kill. And of course, then we started to use it more and more, this Roundup product in our zero-till conservation farming. It was really early days then, Ollie. Like, it was just unheard of to use a herbicide to get rid of weeds. So those early 80s, $23 a litre for Roundup equivalent to these days, is that's what we were using trying to control weeds or the price of what we're trying to control weeds. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about, and I think it's really interesting, I'll say in, in society, in agriculture as well, is just how quickly things advance and the way we look at practices, the way that things have happened and go, oh, I can't believe we ever did that. I'd love to know your take on it, looking at things like Roundup and you saw the days before that. What's your take on that, that evolution, I guess, and, and reflecting on history and how things have happened, but then also looking into the future of what does agriculture kind of look like going forwards? It was a combination of things. It wasn't just Roundup or glyphosate, as we commonly know it these days. It was all other things like synthetic pyrethroids came in in that late 1970s too. That's an insecticide, and it's such a brilliant thing for knocking down insects that we didn't really want in our crops and providing some residual. And I do remember late 70s, early 80s in the South Burnet, and we had this crop called grain sorghum, which is a great crop over there, but it gets these things called sorghum midge at the flowering stage. And we had 50 to 100 of these little insects per head. You only need three to five to be a problem. So we're using a good old product uh, called Lawsband from Dow. It just wasn't cutting the mustard. You're spraying every day. And then, hallelujah, along came synthetic pyrethroids. Sumicide was the one I used, $52 a litre in a 20-litre drum. I got three drums brought up from Brisbane in a moment taxi, for goodness sake. I was that worried about the cost of the stuff. That's a true story. Didn't have to worry about any any safe loadings left. In those days, but a taxi brought it up from Brisbane, three drums of semicide, I always remember it. And that got rid of our midge for at least a week. And that was such a big revelation to have that that chemistry of those synthetic pyrethroids coming along and doing such a good job in our broadacre farming as well as doing in our cotton. So that was one thing. And then, of course, the zero till and the conservation farming. That's just incredible. And people talk about it like it's an old thing. And I'm still thinking, crikey, I'm still here doing it and practicing it and talking about it and mentioning it. And sometimes... Over the years, then when glyphosate got down to 4 or $5 a litre, Ollie, some of the agronomists, including myself, were saying, don't spray glyphosate. You need to go out and do something different out there because the weeds were not right. Not, they weren't going to die with glyphosate application. So you get this big swing away, don't you? You get this, oh, yes, we recommend glyphosate will cure everything or whatever. And then you come to many years later and you know, you know the product so well, you know the weeds so well, and you know when they're stressed and you know that when glyphosate is not going to work or not do a sufficiently good job, that you say, don't use it. And that's a big turnaround too. Absolutely. Well, I kind of love reflecting. My first job out of school, 2011, and I was working on a, it was a grain, sheep and beef property in southern New South Wales, and we didn't have GPS on the track. We got a big flash new case, Magnum I reckon it was, 165 as the spraying tractor, and that had GPS, but it was the first piece of machinery on this property in 2011 that had GPS. And probably within four or five years, you looked at like you're a very, very strange human being if you weren't running GPS across everything. Even that evolution and speed of change has been so quick. Yeah, certainly has been. That was another big step, wasn't it, that GPS stuff? And, and yeah, there was a few hurdles in the early days of some of my farmer friends. That sort of, I know one, one farmer friend of mine, I think he spent eight hours on the phone to USA trying to get his GPS all sorted out. He wasn't a happy camper when I got there the next morning and started checking a few crops for him, I know that. But eventually it, okay. it, got, it got working. You know, for a bloke that grew up on a tractor in my hometown and had to scuffle the soybeans, you know, like you put a chain down the inside of the wheel and and watch that chain all day and that's all you did. That was the method of guidance in those days. <laughs> How things change and then, as I say, everything just kind of becomes normal. I'd love to know your childhood, 
You're a third generation in your district. What was your childhood? And obviously you were around agriculture. Was it a pathway you wanted to pursue? No, it wasn't at all. I, I had no idea. Like a lot of people say, we don't have any idea what you're going to do. So I grew up on the family farm. As you said, I was a third generation. Granddad came back from World War I and settled the block there and just outside of Gamari. And uh, the farming practices over there have changed. It's not a farming, big farming area anymore now, but it was in those days. And so grew up on the family farm. We had dairy cows. We had pigs. And for some unknown reason, mum had 400 chooks. I don't know how we end up with chooks, but I hated those chooks because every morning before primary school, I had to go down with a reaping hook and reaping hook a whole lot of clover to give them green feed and the shed that they were living in sort of stuff. So I didn't like chooks. I loved the eggs, but I wasn't really keen on the chooks. So we had lucerne, we had maize, we had wheat, barley, sorghum, sunflowers, millets. We had all the cropping things. And that's been a big part of my, still to this day, I still use parts of that stuff that I learned on the farm way back then in the 60s and the 70s, Ollie. It's quite remarkable what you do recall and what you do remember. And I remember once we had a heap of weeds in the in the grain sorghum and they were just coming up. There's no herbicide used much in those days. So Dad said, bugger this, we're going to harrow it. So the sorghum was about six inches high, had a few secondary roots. It's hot as Hades in the day and it was all very flopsy, the plant, so he harrowed it, got all the grass out and the, and the sorghum went two tonne to the acre. Great decision. So that recommendation I have used in my working life over the last 40 years about harrowing a crop of sorghum, grain sorghum, to get rid of a heap of little weeds that we couldn't kill with herbicides. So, you know, how about that for a bit of a blast in the past? What other things do you reckon you picked up as being a farm kid back then that have followed you through your life and have set you up for success? The importance of water and the timing of water going on, water schedule. We did have irrigation at home on the farm. Nothing as big and fancy as some of the guys have got these days, but certainly the water and, believe it or not, the nutrition. I picked up very early, particularly with our lucerne, the nutrition angles about phosphorus and uh, potassium being so vital to grow a, a decent crop of lucerne. And we used to grow a decent crop of lucerne too for the 20 or 30 acres we had of the stuff. So that was about the main thing. I guess I was happy. Didn't know any different, and that all came to a, came to a screaming halt when I got sent away to boarding school for five years. But that was good too, because I had agriculture and animal husbandry down at TSS, and that was a great course for a couple of years of agriculture and two years of animal husbandry, taught and lectured by some very very good individuals that were in the industry for a long time. So, what else do we do on that farm? Mum was a singer. She was a very good singer. She was a alto contralto singer. Dad was a farmer. How the two of them ever met, I'll never know. But it was when when Dad was in <laughs> Brisbane and. He was a blind date, for goodness sake, and he's, he was pretty tall and he could dance and anyhow, one thing led to another, but Alec got singled out for a blind date with Betty and sparks flew and they got married and moved to the farm in 53 up in the Gamari and Paul came along in 55, so the great blind date, I <laughs> yeah. reckon. Well, you've walked into this one. Did you inherit your dad's dancing skills or not? Oh, I'm better than him. <laughs> <laughs> He'd disagree. We always disagree, but we had – Dad was a big, big sort of a rock in my life and my Uncle Don too was on the farm – a mile down the road. Between them two, I learned a lot from either of them, and as long as I didn't get into too much mischief or wind up the barbed wire fence in the in the rotary rake, I was okay. So that wasn't such a good day when I did that. So, uh, but yeah, no, <laughs> I learned a lot from those pair. And uh, farming was pretty simplistic in those days. You had a tractor, you had a you had a some sort of a chisel plough, you had a cultivator, and you had a planter, and you had a roller, and you had some sort of different implements to uh, scuffle things. And then we got started growing soybeans. We had to get really scientific. Then we used to get about four or five hundred acres of soybeans. So this thing called a no-day Gugus precision planter came to the farm and I looked at it and I thought, gee, that's not for me. I'm not going to have anything to do with that thing. It looks like trouble. So I was consigned to the shed to inoculate soybeans the old-fashioned way by a big tarp, bags and bags of soybeans and a heap of a peat inoculant with a shovel in the shade. So that was my job when planting soybeans was coming along. It used to keep me out of trouble. 
Bloody oath. Tell me, was it at boarding school where you really started to come into your own as a bit of a sportsman? And you'll thank me for bringing this up, obviously. I don't know. I was, I was okay, but I certainly wasn't brilliant. I certainly developed after I left boarding school. That's when I really hit my straps. And of course, we're talking about cricket and where I was wanting to go, had gone and, and what sort of talent I had in those days. So it was good boarding school. I enjoyed it. You didn't enjoy it at the time. And some of us got terribly homesick and ready to bail out at the moment's notice. But really, some of those friendships and schoolmates we had way back in those 60s and 70s for me it's over 50 years ago you know still still get phone calls from them and, and see how we're going and all sorts of stuff and you keep running into tss people all the time at, i think and of course one of my favorite mates is professor mike bell down at uq gatton he went to boarding school the same school tss a couple of years behind me and of course we're always giving each other heaps about did this and did that and did everything else and i taught him all his bad habits and i said well he was a bad kid and used to get into trouble so much so that boarding school was a good thing for me. It, it really was. And, of course, the animal agriculture and the animal husbandry course we had there was also very good. And the 28 beehives because I love bees and I had, had bees at home and I just took over looking after the bees at TSS. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was fantastic. There you go. I remember the Slash Mackay was the, was the animal husbandry teacher and he said, we had used to get a call from some Southport resident or Isla Capri or Chevron Isle or something like that. I've got a swarm of bees in their house or their thing and he used to come and get me out of class and down I'd go to this fancy place and he'd sit inside having a nice cup of tea or whatever and I'd be outside in the warm sun sweating and uh, trying to get these bees out of a gutter or out of a tree into a box to take them back to the school and uh, put them in a hive at school and I always remember I always got the short end of that deal there but got to drink a water occasionally, that was about it. You wouldn't catch me dead doing that, only because I'm, I'm slightly allergic to them, yeah. so I probably wouldn't go down no, too well. Go but you are probably battling them without the protection of a bee suit as well, I imagine. When they're swarming, they're, they're very full of uh, you know, their pollen and their honey because then they swarm, they, get, they think they're under attack, and that's what the smoker does. Puts them under a bit of a pressure, and they go and fill up with uh, all the food they can. They're a bit like a drunken sailor after that, so they're much more easier to handle, much more sedate, and as long as you don't wear any deodorant or be smelly from sweat or anything like that and flap at them, they'll just crawl all over you, which is what has happened to me quite a few times in the paddock when I've driven across a crop of bees out of Jalaka one day and I was on a four-wheel motorbike and I drove over the bees and I didn't see it. I was just looking at the paddock and I was on the phone, of course, on a four-wheel motorbike and next minute I'm parked and all these bees started coming up on my legs and all over the bike and I thought, ah, oh, we buggered. It's on a dock plant. They just swarmed and they were looking for somewhere to live so they settled on this dock plant for a few days and I just drove over the dock plant and parked on it. So I just gently backed the motorbike back and about 50 yards away they all left me and went back to, to the queen and back to the swarm. So I went, hmm. So I went and got a 20-litre drum, got it all cleaned out from the farmer's place, went back up the paddock and put a couple of sticks inside and just gently herded them off the dock bush into the 20-litre drum. It was nice and clean. And they all just settled in there quite handily. And I told one of the farmhands, if you want to be high, there's one up there in the drum. Go and grab it. Simple. The simple little things. Oh, it's, you know, got a million of them, Molly. But we haven't got all day. <laughs> well, we, we might. You never know. Talk me through leaving school. The pathways, what, what were the options ahead for you? Obviously, very keen sportsman, professional sports wasn't an option. What were you looking at doing? I had no idea. I came back to the family farm after school and I really didn't know what I was going to do. And then a gentleman called Adrian Calvert, who's been a big part of my life in those early days, uh, was the uh, local manager of Australian Estates, which is a stock and station agency part of Elders these days when the merger happened in 83. So Adrian came out and saw Dad and said, what's Paul going to do? And Dad said, I don't know. And so I went and had an interview with Adrian on the following Monday. 
first thing he said that told me all about the job. It's just going to be a trainee. And in those days, we we're just looking at the big beef slump back in 73, 74. And that was massive. Like, the, you know, it was just, it just sucked the money completely out of the ag industry everywhere. And the cattle industry went right down. So I just got put on as a trainee and that meant you did everything. And that was good. And I got transferred all around to places like Chartist House and Townsville and Julia Creek and Theodore and Rockhampton and Glen Innes. And I was learning all about stuff. And I, of course, in those days, you know, the ag had sort of fallen behind and I was looking at this animal husbandry. And in other words, I was going to be an auctioneer. I was going to be a gun auctioneer, selling cattle, you know, drafting up cattle, those big speary horn bullocks up in uh, Charters Towers or Townsville or Julia Creek, jumping out the road of them and drafting them up in the gates and the different pens and stuff like that. That's what I thought I was going to be. And I had some great people I looked up to in those days, people like Dave Watkins and people like him. He was just superb. And, and my old mate Joe Keppel out at Wondow, and still alive, Joe, is the great auctioneers. They just can get some atmosphere going. And it really is exciting to sit at one of those quarter horse Appaloosan sales at Rockhampton and listen to Dave Watkins going along. And of course, I made a big boo-boo, didn't I? So, But we got past that, all right. So, so, so it was just amazing. So I had no idea. But I always had this desire. I was playing a lot of cricket. And as I said, uh, you know, that, that one year there, 74, 75, about 246 eight-ball overs before Christmas, and I was a fast bowler. That's a lot of bowling, a lot of cricket. And then eventually Dad said, you better come home and try Brisbane. So I uh, gave away the Australian Estates company, went home at Gamari, and it's only a three-hour drive to, get to Brisbane, so I used to go down each weekend and play cricket for Sandgate Redcliffe. Tell me, because like, I'm very interested, an eight-ball over wasn't meaning you're bowling two no-balls each over. There used to be eight-ball overs. Good grief, Ollie, you are young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate. I was going to say, I, I, I said, Paul, it sounds like, I was thinking, geez, Paul, it sounds like you're kind of bragging, but 246 eight-ball overs probably isn't a great stat to have these oh, days. Oh, well, I've got two steel <laughs> hips and a bloody dicky knee these days, mate, so they sort of, it got back in the My right shoulder got a bit reconstructed too a couple of years ago. So, no, it was just the way it was, and cricket was going to be my game. I developed a lot more after I left boarding school which was good. And with dad's coaching and a few other people coaching and my desire, my drive, I thought, well, there's a go. And of course, World Series was coming in. So I thought, wow, if a lot of blokes go to World Series, there might be a chance for Paul McIntosh to sneak into the Queensland team or maybe in the Australian team. But Carl Rackerman beat me to it. So, so I, I, I went back to agronomy and he went on. So Carl was from just up the road at Wondi. And of course, he's a well-known person in that uh, in that South Bernard area and we became great friends but against each other on the cricket field we wasn't so much friendship but we're good these days so Carl went on and uh, I just decided to go back into the Australian Estates Company and start to do this stuff called agronomy more in mid-79. What stage did you kind of realise that the dream of making those higher levels kind of wasn't going to come to fruition and you decided you know what I'm going to park that and start to focus on the agriculture? Well, it all came about. Dad wanted to sell a family farm and build a motel in Gamaria, which we thought was ludicrous. I thought about it, and I remember the day, right to this moment, when I was in May 79, I was walking across the street to Australian State to see my old boss, Adrian Calvert. I hadn't made up my mind whether I was going to go to England and play cricket over there, or I was going to stay and start to do this agronomy role that Adrian had mapped out for me to do. Or, or, it wasn't called agronomy in those days. It was just called looking after the seed and the chemical and making sure they give plenty of farmer advice. So... He just talked me into it, and thank goodness he did. Was I good enough to go on? I'll never know. And and Ros and I, who's my wife for 43 years, and she was going to go to England with me, she thought, well, I wonder where we'd be. And I said, so good cricketers went over on that plane load of people to play in, uh, play in uh, England, and that's was establishment in the World Series. We are at Loggerhead. So there was a chance, but as I said, Carl made it. I decided to go other ways, and we still shake hands and say good day to each other when we run into each other. But 
Agronomy just took over. I had that background, Ollie, of the farm, you know, and I had all those crops in my mind and I had all the things I used to do on the farm with Dad and Uncle Don and uh, it was very much a mixed enterprise with cattle and cropping going hand in hand and I just continued on on that. How did that transition go? Because going from the livestock auctioneer dream game, like back into agronomy, was it really just utilising, I guess, what you'd learned through the years or, or how did you actually get up to speed on and the skill set that you needed to understand yeah, what was happening in the plant space? Always had the skill in the plant space. The, the, the auctioneering was just a thing when I was a trainee, so I went on for about two years. So I always had that sort of stuff, that planting and the seed and the fertiliser and the, all the other stuff that we need to think about with our farming uh, systems in those early days on the 70s. I had them in the – when I was living on the farm at the time when I was playing cricket in Brisbane. So I had what I might have lost in the three years I was transferred all around the, the countryside with the States, so I certainly gained it back again when uh, living on the farm, that's for sure. And, and I was still bringing home some chemical called atrazine. I said to Dad and Uncle Don, I said, we need to put some of this on the grain sorghum. And I said, to control that dog on uroclower that robs all the moisture and the yield. And they said, oh, we're not into fancy herbicides. That won't work. Well, I got them to do one land. Well, the, the one land went a tonne and a half to the acre of sorghum and the rest of it went about under a tonne to the acre. So I had a win there too. So I was on my way. And if I convinced those two old fellas, Dad and Uncle Don, to use a chemical, I reckon I can convince anyone. Is there one thing or something that you've seen over your career that you think has been the biggest advantage either to yourself or actually to the industry um, that has made the most significant change? Apart from zero till, oh, we talked about a GPS guidance. I think that was a big one, but I think zero till, minimum till, conservation farming was the big thing. Like It's just mind-boggling about what people used to do with the 12 hours on, 12 hours off, which means 12 hours on a tractor going round and round, then you'd get off, someone else would get on and do that, particularly in those big areas on the Western Downs and in New South Wales where those very large paddocks, in Gamera, you didn't have to worry about that. Didn't even need lights on the tractor, really, but certainly on those other areas they did. And, of course, spraying was a dam site quicker than cultivating and a dam site more better off the soil structure and moisture and all that sort of stuff too. So I still think that's one of the biggest things we've had over the years. And, of course, in these later on in the, all those years I was trying to get people to use Roundup and now I'm trying to stay woo, 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 woo up a bit on the Roundup only. Well, let's do something a bit different than just using more Roundup, more Roundup, more Roundup. And that comes along with my Wheat Smart hat on to this current period, but zero till, I'd say. But the insects, that synthetic right? I love that synthetic right in those days. They gave us back a lifestyle and gave us back our crops for quite a while. I love that. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to park the weed smart stuff for a moment because what I'd really love to know, Paul, from your perspective, these different changes, and I'm going to call them the evolution that have happened within agriculture as our understanding has grown. How have you actually approached like, that willingness to learn, to adapt, to, that change is actually a good thing for yourself. And then I'm going to follow that because I want to know then how you actually then convinced your customers and the farmers that you're working with that this change is sometimes it can be scary, but actually this is the natural progression and evolution we're going through. I guess when the elders had come along, and we had no Google in those days either. There was no mobile phones, no Google. It was all just go to a landline and pick up and see if you can find someone. And you couldn't Google anything, so it was all research papers you'd pick up and grab and go to field days and really pay attention instead of sneaking off down the back and have a look at something else sort of stuff. So it was very manual or practical. You know, it's who you knew, where you could dig it up field day's attention. And of course, in elders in those days, we had some really good agronomists and uh, we're all about the same level, but everyone was trying something. And you've got to bless the farmers of then and today that they were very willing to be 
part of the, the guinea pig brigade, I suppose you'd say. And they were very much guinea pigs of what we were trying to do and, and direct them rather than push them and direct them and advise them into some of these new farming tactics. Like, talk about crop rotation. It was just the Western Downs used to be wheat, 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 barley maybe, oats for cattle. That was after they cleaned up the brigalow scrub. And, of course, then we got so much crown rot and all that stuff and black oats and wild canary and all that stuff. And we couldn't control it with the herbicides we had. Hey, presto. Let's grow some summer crops. Oh, it's too hot, too dry, too everything. Well, here comes the zero till to build up the moisture. So let's have a go at some low population grain sorghum crops with the use of atrazine and suck up those weeds like black oats, like wild canary, and be a break crop to that crop call we called wheat that had all this crown rot in it, which we didn't know much about in those days. So that farming system has developed over the years because of necessity. It's developed because of people like myself and the era that I was in developing and wanting to push forward with farming practices in the future. And of course, it was always a bit of good kudos if he did it, if he did something different to everybody else and it worked out really, really well. Well, they got plenty of mileage in the, in the company of people I was in sort of stuff. And that was always a big thing. You didn't want to get left behind and we had lots of meetings and all that sort of stuff. So it developed over the time, but it was uh, interesting times, but times without Google. So you had to really go and seek the knowledge. Is there one accomplishment or something that you kind of really hang your hat on as being significant for you personally in your career? I don't think so. I was part of a team. I, I didn't think I did anything different to the rest of the other guys. We were all pushing ahead in different boundaries. And, of course, there's a time period, those 80s is when I'm talking about, where we pushed and developed a lot more. It got a lot busier in the 90s with where we had Google. No, we didn't have Google. We had mobile phones, which is a big, big improvement. No, I just think I was just pushing ahead. I've done more towards the back end of the career more than the front end of the career. I was just an average agronomist poking around the countryside, recommending the best way forward or best practice for the farming zone. you. And you got to know these people and you knew what they wanted to achieve. You knew where their risk level was. And that was an important part of, uh, of being an agronomist in those days, knowing your clients and going out there and kicking the front door and zipping in for morning tea or lunch or something like that and sitting down with them and in, at the farming table, at the farm table and saying, well, what are we doing with that paddock? Oh, we can't do that because we got that there. So you're an extension part of their knowledge of their own farm. And of course, that continued on for a long time. And I was just thinking about it before today and uh, there's some families I did three generations with and of course if I'd stuck around for a few more I would have done four like some of the guys are doing these days but three generations of, of looking after and giving advice to their farming operation that's pretty significant there's plenty of twos around but not too many threes around it's a big thing and you go to their family weddings and all that sort of stuff so you really are part of the furniture you really are a trusted advisor and that takes time to cultivate that Connection, Connection. Really, isn't that's it? the word. That's it. It takes time to get connect, And you get confident in your own skills too, Ollie. That's another thing. You, you really know that if you put X, Y, Z on that crop, it's going to do the job. And sometimes labels didn't agree. Hmm. I'm interested. You said you did a lot more in the latter parts of your career than the early parts. What changed? Well, I think we're a bit slower in those early days and practice change took a lot extra time. But these days, it's really happening very quickly. And of course, you know, one of the things I talk about with my Pulse Australia role, as well as my Weed Smart role, is obeying the labels and all that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, some of our labels are very old, so they haven't changed to reflect our new farming practices or farming systems these days. But certainly getting more involved with the MRLs and the withholding periods for our pulse crops and even our grain crops and all those things has been a big part and uh, doing a lot of work for the Australian Mung Bean Association, getting mung beans to be swathed rather than sprayed out. It's just been a massive thing. Hasn't gone all the way yet as far as fully adopted practice change, but it certainly started. And that was because a farmer friend of mine said, 
we better do something different. I can't stand harvesting those mung beans with any more green stems. But I said, well, let's swath the beggars. So we swathed them, which is the principle of just dropping on the ground in a winrow and coming along three, five, seven, ten days later and picking up the pick up front. Worked like a charm. And then, of course, we've got Australian Mungbean Association, DPI in Queensland and all that. We got, got into it and we've got a practice change. We've, it's been fully researched. It'll just meander out into the system. And, of course, it'll take our quay, one of those really big, issues that we've got with MRLs with some of our herbicides like glyphosate going overseas in our clean green mung beans. So that'll happen in a lot of legume crops and it happens now. It happens in our millet crops to make it easier to harvest more than anything else, our swathing. But certainly that's one big practice change in the last five, six, seven years that I'm pretty proud of, Ollie. How have you seen that that understanding of how we use chemicals as a tool? How's that actually changed as well? And what have you slash, let's say we, as the industry learned? Oh, a lot. <laughs> I think I said to you in the email, you know, as long as the fences didn't fall down and the, and the livestock didn't get crook and die, it was fair game to use it on the crops in those days. And that's exactly what it was. You know, you, you got into it and uh, as long as you fixed the problem and everything else is okay, you know, the labour was incidental. And of course, talk about a reformed character. As I say to people when I'm talking to them, I'm a, I'm a reformed character. And I am, because uh, I know full well we have to obey these labels. We know that their crop sensitivity is getting more and more to some of these products, pesticides we put on. So we have to be on the ball. And of course, then we've got to talk about resistance. We talk about pesticide resistance. So there's a whole suite of issues there that has to go away from the Paul McIntosh, you know, carefree attitude of all those years ago and onto more direct paths where we've still got a saleable product. No one with a very sensitive MRL meter is going to pick it up when it gets overseas somewhere and, you know, ban the stuff. So been a lot going on in that regard over the years in those farming practices and that's probably the one that gets a fair bit of airplay these days ollie it certainly does tell me because you were on landline and this is the the beauty of having you paul send through a whole bunch it was like okay here's the research that we normally do and now let's go boom because paul has pretty well written got a book on his life of the key points but you're on landline several times one of them was around what if farming without glyphosate in the future tell me more about that yeah, well, I know the, the landline people reason me well with my ABC connections and Kerry Lonigan, I think, did the interviewing and uh, we talked about it and uh, it made me think. I'd done a talk for the Crop Consultants of Australia as well about what if farming in the future without glyphosate and I did the same thing for landline. I would have liked a bit more time on the landline one, but uh, that's the way it goes. But certainly it made everyone think about what if we haven't got glyphosate, the number one herbicide in the world. And, of course, that goes right along with my Wheat Smart, you know, tips and tactics too, Ollie. And uh, what if we haven't got glyphosate? We need to think about mixing and rotating and different tips and tactics for our weed control because that is still a major part of any farming environment, these weeds or plants out of place. And so uh, the landline story was good, if not a bit short. I could have done more. But Kerry was on a time schedule, evidently, and uh, very happy to do it, but believe I could have filled in more issues behind all that sort of stuff, as well as MRLs on our glyphosate going overseas. So what are the things that you would have added to that that you didn't have the chance to? Oh, I would have talked more about the mixing and rotating and taking the pressure off, off glyphosate by different other tips and tactics. We just... You know, like I said, when glyphosate became from $23 to $4 a litre, we used it so much. It was wholesale use in those OOs and O1s years, and uh, it was really didn't do us any good at all for herbicide resistance, Ollie. So I would have talked more about, you know, not having our number one herbicide glyphosate just used every turn. Every weed in the paddock, you see, I'm going to hit that with glyphosate, be it shielded spraying down the middle of rows, desiccation before harvest, or pre-plant and all that sort of stuff. I would have talked more about some practical means of 
getting past what if we have no glyphosate. That's what I would have concentrated more on with a bit more time. It's interesting. Like in 2015, I went and worked on a farm over in Canada, a grain property, and it was really interesting to look at the mentality difference between Australian growers and the growers over there because like we were – so their lentils were at kind of record prices over there and one of these paddocks, I think it must have been the third or fourth year in a row that it was lentils and we kept going through these big sections where it was just thistles and obviously the it was red in bushels per acre over there and we were yielding zero bushels per acre in like quite a few spots in the paddock. We had this really interesting chat around sustainability and that resistance that exists. It's amazing how – well, that short-term profitability mindset can creep in, but actually, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what those paddocks are kind of looking like now because it was bizarre and I'll say like fairly confronting as well to go like, well, this is literally just practice practice change or practices that have led to this and actually could be overcome with some better management. Yeah, very true. And we know that the North Americans have got trouble with uh, Palmer amaranth over there and a few other weeds too. And we know that they look at Australia and what we're doing with the WeedSmart team. And that's quite quite common to, to think. And, and of course, on Twitter, or X as it's called these days, I'm often engaging with some of those guys I've seen saying, well, what are you doing? And of course, I go back to uh, 2005, and I did a trip over to North, North America there. We did all around US. I did 26 states. And I told them, even in those early days, they're on the wrong track, you know. I did a few field day talks and all that sort of stuff, and I said, listen, guys, you know, you need to think about doing something just better than just glyphosate and gene technology and all that sort of stuff. And then 2012, I was over there again with another tour group. This is just all blokes mostly, and I told them again, and very forcefully, and of course, didn't get any, it'll be right, we'll just inject another gene into the crops and we'll, we'll use glyphosate plus something else. And I thought, ah, just shake my head. Where are they these days? You know, there's quite a few guys that recognise over there, quite a few good research people over there in America recognise they're in trouble and they look at Australia, they look at the Weed Smart, what we've done, which is a, a fantastic initiative through UWA and GRDC. You know, it's a great thing. And we talk about this stuff all the time and we had to, we had to. So from a reform character like myself, who was just happy to use two litres of Roundup and if it didn't work, we'd use three litres next time. Well, we've come a long way. And that's a big thing for Australian agriculture, I believe. <laughs> so, Paul, well, you say you're a reformed character. I'm going to confess my sins here. So I live, I live here in Geelong and I've only got a very small little area of grass. Anyway, we've got that many different broad leaves coming up in it. So I hit it with weed and feed the other day. Anyway, I've been away for 10 days. I came back and I thought, geez, I'm going to have to go out and ask one of my mates who's got a farm down the road. I was like, I'm going to just have to get some MCPA or something and just nuke this stuff. <laughs> So uh, maybe I better look at even just a little practice change in my backyard. <laughs> no, there's plenty of, plenty of options out there. You just got to pick the wrong one, mate. Yeah. And sometimes they won't be on the label either, Ollie. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> won't be on the label. Well, I was thanks. Here I was thinking, oh, it must have just been yeah the level that we were putting it on at. If it hasn't quite rolled those daffodils or whatever it was. So. Yeah, plants out of place. They're they're all called weeds, but you know, good in some of them, not good in any of them. And uh, you've got to think about parthenium and feathertop roads and things like that. You just think. Why is that thing here? Because there's just no, there's no good for it that I can see at this stage anyhow, that's for sure. And you're right, ask different kettle of fish. Well, we promoted that, didn't we? We put it in the ground to grow for feed for the livestock for you, especially down in the southern areas where you are. That was back in the early 1900s. And I tell you, I can't tell you how many tonnes of ryegrass seed I sold into southern states from Queensland to grow for livestock feed. And here we are now, these are the number one weeds in the world as far as herbicide resistance goes. Well, if I was a 
a little livestock grazer in my backyard, I'd just be calling it regenerative farming with the amount of different weeds that I've got. But I don't know if that's quite a <laughs> that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> Might have to get edited out that part of the regenerative farming comment, mate. Uh, well, I'm I'm interested to find out a little bit more about the Weed Smart. Tell me about the work that you're you're doing today. Well, actually, we're getting packed to go down and look after two grandkids. To be really honest, and I can't find my golf club, so that's another problem. But the Weed Smart team these days is extremely good. We've got some great girls over there in Perth, and uh, and great boys and girls. As the there's only five of us, I think, in Australia to do the practical things of, of Weed Smart. So it's a big thing. And of course, when I took this on, I left Landmark as it was back in 2015, took on this dual role. So it's a dual role, Ollie. It's Weed Smart and it's Pulse Australia, which talks about all our pulse crops and was a major, major leading industry uh, organisation. Pulse Australia has been for many, many years and gone under Weed Smart. So I can do the two jobs in the one sentence just about, about talking about pulse crops and talking about competition. That's one of our Weed Smart big six sort of stuff. So up here in the north... And I get some strange looks from some of my other teammates sometimes, but we have that summer and winter cropping options. And that makes it a lot better for us as far as getting on top of weed. If I got transferred to South Australia or West Australia, there's just wheat and, and just a winter cropping program, I'd be bereft for a while until I got my feet on the ground. But certainly up here, we've got better things. And of course, one of Paul McIntosh's more infamous statements, Ollie, was in 1995, he went to Moree in northern New South Wales to a herbicide resistance two days down there. And I thought, ah, oh, anyhow, I got pushed into it by my boss. He said, you better go down and find out about it. I thought, ah, it's a waste of time. Two days, I'll never get back, you know, the old phrase. Got down there and after about a day and three quarters, I stood up and said, we'll never have herbicide resistance in the north because we have a summer and winter cropping operation. We can we can mix and rotate our crops. We can mix and rotate our herbicide. We have about 11 or 12 modes of action. We'll be fine. We'll never have herbicide resistance in the north. 1995, what an idiot Paul McIntosh was. So, here I am at Weedsmart now saying we've got herbicide resistance. And, of course, the further I go north, I go right up to the burdock and, of course, they're starting to develop some herbicide resistance up there. And I tell people that. I tell people that I made a big boo-boo in 1995 and don't be like a Paul McIntosh because we have got herbicide resistance. Everyone in northern New South Wales, South Queensland knows that. Central Queensland's getting there and North Queensland has got a bit to go yet. But certainly the herbicide resistance has been one of the biggest issues we've had. But, of course... We had heliosomidra resistance for uh, insecticides like synthetic pyrethroid back in the 80s and the late 80s too. So we've all been there for some of these things up in the northern region about pesticide resistance getting worse and worse. So we have to be pretty careful with our pesticide range that we apply and mix and rotate, you know, all that sort of stuff. Not only is it applied to weeds, but also applies to our insecticides. And Nikki Pearl will be glad to hear me say this, also applies to our fungicides too. Absolutely. So let's chat briefly about your involvement with the GRDC. You sp- spent nine odd years as part of the Regional Advisory Committee and then three years as chair. Look, why did you get involved in those different committees and groups through the GRDC? Oh, I just thought it was a good part to be involved in. That's pretty a bland answer, but that's what I thought. I believed in agriculture. I believed in knowing all parts of agriculture. I believed in the organisations like AgForce, like GRDC, like the Australian Mung Bean Industry, like Pulse Australia. I believe in all those industry organisations to, do a, to a, a, do a positive impact on our farming community. And I thought, well, I'm not going to sit on the outside and criticise. I'm going to get in there and, and assist and be part of it and offer advice and help out any way I can do for any of those industry organisations. And this is before I even joined, you know, Pulse Australia and and, uh, and Weedsmart. And uh, so I did a lot of those things and I was really, really keen to do it. You get to know a lot of people, you get a lot of skills getting put into your head, like you, you see different things, different practices, which is good. So I did get involved. And, of course, once you're in, you're in and, and you get to know a lot of people and you've got to respect for a lot of people. And that's one thing that, you know, all these 
all these industry things. You've got some tremendous people in some of these organisations, Ollie, and I've got tons of respect from them. And uh, they go past me any old day on a lot of things and it's just good to work with them and promote Australian farming practices, best practices to our to our farmers uh, around the countryside these days. So love those sort of things and uh, getting in there having morning tea with them and, or lunches or whatever else is going on and right into that morning tea and lunches, especially when they're free. <laughs> and country hospitality is very, very hard. Country hospitality is very – I've had ladies chucking sandwiches in the window as I drove past one day. It was that busy. So she wound down the window and she chucked it on the passenger seat and I ate it as I was driving along. That's a true story too. <laughs> Tell me about what it was like in 2020 to get the Seat of Light Award for the Northern Region. Oh, Heck of a shock. It changed a bit of how they got notified of it. Lee, it was, once it was a big surprise, but I do remember an occasion where a winner was not present on the night at Gundawindi. And, it, and for the northern regions, it's, it's mostly at the northern region uh, for at Gundawindi. And, of course, it's the two-day GRDC update out there uh, organised by John Cameron. So I got this email and I was in Gunnedah at the time and I was doing a bit of pulse work and a bit of weed smart work down at Gunnedah. And I was sitting at the, at the dinner table and uh, I got an email from a GRDC person and uh, he said, Dear Paul, I just want to let you know you've been awarded the Northern Region Seat of Light. Well, I fell off the chair. I couldn't believe it. I read it again and I thought, oh, I think this has got this wrong. It can't be a me. I'm nothing special. So I tore down the street and I rang my wife and I said, I've got this email here. I said, I don't think it's a scammer. I said, I think it's genuine. I think I've been awarded the Seat of Light Award for 2020 for GRDC. And we were just both speechless and all that sort of stuff and uh, went back into my dinner guests. And of course, you couldn't say a thing to anybody. So for two months, I couldn't say anything to anybody. It was Fantastic. And driving down there, I went down with my mate, Mike Bell, and of course, we're pretty close and uh, share a lot of things. And I didn't tell him at all. And of course, I got heaps of that next day after I got awarded that GRDC uh, Seat of Light Award by uh, John Minogue at night at Gundawindi. And it was just, I won't say surreal, it was just overwhelming or something like that. I was so proud to get it. So it just had me flummoxed. I thought, well, I'm just pretty ordinary. I just go around and do my job and do as best I can. And uh, and here I got this award. So I was just overwhelmed with humbleness, which is an overused word, but uh, it's true, and gratitude, and I probably a desire to do more for the industry after that particular award, which I've tried to do. So what does the future look like for you, Paul? What have you still got on that bucket list? What are the things that you really want to tick off and contribute to? Look, there's a lot of things going on in the, in the Pulse industry, with Pulse Australia, and a lot of things going on in the Mungbean community, which I want to be part of. There's still a lot of things going on with Weed Smart, and uh, I still want to be part of those whole things in the future. And, and as my wife says, I've got no hobbies, so I might as well keep working. So I'm going to. I'm going to keep working. I enjoy it. I enjoy the uh, interaction with everybody, from farmers to media to organisations like GRDC and all that sort of stuff. So I do enjoy that part. I'm going to keep doing it. You do get a lot of phone calls and a lot of asked for comments and advice, which I'm very happy to do. And, uh, of course, we, we're collaborating a lot more with uh, CRDC these days too, which is a which is a great thing to do. So a bit of collaboration because farmers, not just cotton farmers or grain farmers, there's a lot of them that just do both. And uh, so I'm looking to, to forge ahead with that collaboration for these uh, RDCs. I'm looking forward to uh, getting rid of some of these weeds or getting on top of these some of these weeds that have got ridiculous amounts of herbicide resistance to them. And I'm looking forward to just contributing more to the Australian agricultural community in my own neck of the woods here in the northern region for many years to come, health notwithstanding. So we're all on the ears of Paul McIntosh. I'm happy to continue on, Ollie. Yeah, I love that, Paul. No slowing down. No. So we've got a couple of questions which we want to wrap on. First of all, and they're kind of quick fire, just throw out the first things that 
come to your mind. What is your favourite grain-based dish? Porridge. Uncle Toby's Ooh. oats. Have it every morning. There you go. Five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Keeps me young and healthy. There you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, put some Allbrand on top too oh. for a bit of fibre too, Ollie. I don't know if we've had that one yet. No. What about three people you'd like to invite around to a dinner party? Few reasons. I think Murray's doing a pretty good job and he handles himself pretty well. Also, he's a Brisbane State High boy in Brisbane, so I'd like to get to say good day and shake his hand. So I'd like to have Murray. John Woods is always good, a good bloke, both for his knowledge, his commitment to industry and all that sort of stuff. And uh, believe it or not, I'd like to ask Anastasia Palaszczuk because I'd like to get into her ear about a few things that I reckon she can do better with our grain industry up here in Queensland. So I'd have those three, John Woods, Murray Watt, and Anastasia Palaszczuk, our Queensland Premier. I'd have Roz cook the meal because she's a damn good cook, my wife, so there wouldn't be any worry about going out to a dinner somewhere. We can do it right here at home in uh, in Toowoomba. So that'll be my three oh, guests. And if you want to come along, mate, you're more than welcome. Oh, I'll just come and be a fly on the wall. Maybe I can be the person that just serves the dishes I'll, um, and clean up. Yeah, no, I do the cleaning <laughs> up, mate. <laughs> so they're the three. Yeah, that'd be good. I hadn't thought of that one before, but that's the three I would invite. There you go. What's something you've got on your bucket list? I think I'll try to. I'll keep pushing the uh, the weed smart tactics about uh, herbicide resistance. I'll keep pushing the pulse industry MRLs and all that sort of stuff. I'll keep pushing good farming practices, I suppose, and learning from other people, and picking up different things and trying to transfer that that knowledge to other areas. And uh, that so that's on my bucket list, mate. I, I'm not sure I got anything else. I'm just going to keep Paul McIntosh developing, and therefore other parts of our industry, other people will develop also, hopefully, if I can use my three eyes. The three eyes is inform, influence, and inspire. And that was compliments of Peter Newman from, uh, from Western Australia in the Weedsmart team. And he's taught me a few things about inform, influence, and inspire when you're talking to people about what you know, giving the information, giving some facts and, and having some influence, and then inspiring me to take that knowledge and take that message and go and produce it somewhere else and talk to someone else about it. Three eyes. That's the way I, I work. I love that. And so one final question for you, Paul. What is it about Australian agriculture that makes you hopeful, optimistic and excited about the future? Because we're the best in the world. Great answer. No, look, <laughs> I've done enough touring overseas in Europe and, uh, and uh, America and I, you know, I still think Australia, we stand head and shoulders above what other people do in the world and we've got very little water to do it. We've got some big expenses of land that are some are good and some are not so good. But yeah, I'm just going to keep advancing Australian agriculture as we do it. And the rest of the world can toot along behind us if they like. And that all parts of Australian agriculture, no matter what crop you grow or where you grow it or whatever, I want to try and keep advancing Australian agriculture by the practical means that we use on our own farming environments. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me for a chat. I reckon there's going to be plenty of people who are going to take a lot out of your story and your different journeys. And I personally find it really inspiring that you can have done so much, seen so much, contributed so much. But that, And it's something that I just bloody love about agriculture is that people kind of aren't done. There's always more to do. And I can't wait to actually meet you in person one day, shake your hand. But thank you for coming on for a chat. That'd be really good. So you don't want to know about my story about being in someone's kitchen one morning, the morning tea. And I uh, got there and I was leaning up against the stove and the stove had just cooked a whole heap of biscuits, which I was about to consume. And I was leaning up against the stove in the middle of winter and my coat caught fire. So I'm trying to race around the kitchen and the lady chasing me with the tea towel, trying to put the fire out on my backside with my coat. And then her son walked in the door and wanted to know what the heck was going on with his mother chasing me around the, the kitchen table, trying to fire out. Now that was interesting. Oh my God, that's a story for Names will time. not be mentioned, but it was very funny and 
close friends, no doubt mum close friend and the son's still a close friend and, and lives not too far away from me, but that was a, I thought that one might be a good one one day. <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, it was very, very funny at the time. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grain sector. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.